Hello, everyone. This is JAXA's Space Education Center podcast. I'm Dr. Kei Kiragawa, director of the center. Welcome to this beautiful autumn season for those living in the Northern Hemisphere. The summer is starting in the Southern Hemisphere, but wherever you may be, I bet you have been paying particular attention to the moon. On the 21st of October, we held a stargazing event as a part of Observe the Moon Night series led by NASA. With the successful launch of JAXA's Slim Probe, I hope that you're all excited about more opportunities to learn about space, especially about the moon. Related to this, we have an announcement. On the day of Open Campus in Sagamihara on November 3rd, we will have a practice run of our new edutech material, LunarCraft. Many of you may know about Minecraft, yes? And this is the Lunar version. If you cannot come to Sagamihara on the day, please just wait until the release day, which will be set in 2024. Next up, we will co host three online seminars on the theme of sample returns. The first one will be on the Apollo missions. Scientists and curators will talk to us about the lunar rocks. We have a great lineup of speakers waiting for your participation on October 31st. The registration is still open, so please check out our ex post. The second and the third of this series will be held on November 14th and 28th, respectively. The 14th will cover The sample return projects such as Hayabusa, Hayabusa 2, and Osiris Rex. And the 28th will cover future missions, including JAXA's MMX, Martian Moons Exploration. The international superstars of the field will be speaking every time. Although we'll be posting the archives of those events later, please join us live if you can. So, today's main topic naturally is how international collaborations play out in space missions. At the Space Education Center, we had four student interns at the end of the summer. Two of them have interviewed scientists at ISIS, and today we shall share their interview with Professor Masaki Fujimoto, Deputy Director General of ISIS. Enjoy! Welcome to everybody listening to today's podcast from the JAXA Space Education Center. Today, we will discuss international cooperation in space missions. My name is Costanza and I'm Rona. Joining us to cover the topic is Dr. Masaki Fujimoto, Deputy Director General of the Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, JAXA. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Please, could you tell us about your career? Yes, I used to be a practicing scientist. I used to work on、uh, plasma physics. Then I shifted to the formation theory of the solar system. Then I started to be involved in asteroid sample return missions, have、so、the first and the second. And、uh, during that journey, I became to be a part of an administrative、um, office. And then、uh, I'm now the deputy director general of the institute. Perfect, thank you. So, for clarity, we will divide the interview in three parts. Part one will focus on the origin of a mission, 
Part two will focus on cooperation during the mission. And finally, in part three, we will discuss takeaways from past missions and suggestions for the future. During the past two weeks as part of our internship, we have interviewed a series of ISS experts involved in different missions to try to create a picture of international cooperation in JAXA space missions. Based on their answers, we have highlighted a number of recurring topics that we want to discuss today, which inform the questions we will ask so that everyone listening can have a better understanding of international cooperation. Therefore, to begin with, uh, a general picture, could you please help us situate JAXA within an international context? I think the budget side is the um, easiest way to understand where we stand in the global landscape. So NASA's space science budget is 10 times over ours. And the ESA, European Space Agency, their budget is like five times over ours. So we are the kind of third in the world, but you know, by far less than the second, in a sense. So think about this. So when your business size is 10 times less than your, your competitors, do you think you do the same thing, but at the scale of a tenth of your competitors? You don't, right? So we have to have our own style. And uh, luckily, in space science, big mission doesn't take it all. It's not that small missions are not interesting. Uh, there are some roles we can play if we are smart enough, if we are creative enough. So that's how we survive. Uh, we don't run as big, you know, big missions like NASA does. But still, we can try to, to create something really, really interesting. Uh, together with our international partners. So, um, yeah, establishing our style is what we are really struggling with, uh, even today, yeah. Right, then would you say that an international cooperation mission is an opportunity to do something that you wouldn't be able to do within your own budget? True, um, well, but if you say we do international cooperation to save budget, you know, yeah. you don't, you know, you don't not gonna have a nice partnership. So it's really, sharing the goal together, you know, really reaching for the same goal together. Well, it, it, well, we're talking about science activities, and, and besides, science, space science missions takes a lot of years to um, before you get to the launch pad itself. So you really have to share the goal together, otherwise um, you just break apart during the, 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 during the development phase, I'm afraid. So you, sh it's, um, you shouldn't you shouldn't run after direct return by international cooperation. It's really like um, establishing the partnership. Yeah. Perfect. So let's talk more about international cooperation and the partnership starting from the very beginning. We were wondering how does a mission come to be? So what is the process that leads to a project being cooperative? And how do you choose with whom to work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, when you say, when you talk about international cooperation, people try to look at I look at it from a very formality point of view. And there are aspects of formality, especially when you involve space agencies. But the very beginning, it always starts with the conversation among the scientists. So again, you know, during the conversation, you talk about the next mission you have in your mind, your dream mission, how, how you can make it, uh, uh, how you can make it get to the launch pad. And um, because with the evolution of the space science, you need to, have more advanced instruments on board each spacecraft. And then you might be the one to build the instrument, you might find your partner to build the instrument. It's always that kind of discussion, conversation that creates a new mission. 
you have a you have an idea, you think you understand you need this instrument and that instrument to uh, reach that goal, and then you talk to your your partners, domestic and international. We don't really make division uh, as long as you, your friends have that expertise. So that's how how things start. And then as the mission evolves, there's a conversation between space agencies that gets to be more formal. But the very origin is really a conversation among the scientists. In the interviews that we've carried out, the element of risk um, has come up a lot. So space exploration is inherently risky and also expensive. And I think this can be particularly difficult for a publicly funded organization. Uh, something interesting that came up in our interviews was that JAXA's specialization in smaller spacecraft is actually beneficial in this case because it lets you build redundancy into the missions in some ways. For example, you can deploy multiple lightweight spacecraft at once. So do you think that riskier missions have more reason to be carried out cooperatively? Yeah, it depends on which risk aspect you're talking about here. Like um, when you're building a, a new mission through international collaborations, there are multiple layers that gets involved into the conversation. And if you if you talk, if you are talking at the space agency level, and if you say you, your your mission has a risk, well, that's the end of the conversation, of course, because you know at, at the space agency level you have more formality to to, uh, to care about. And when you talk to the scientists, they may like more challenging missions because they all scientists or engineers always want to be the first in the world. But um, on the other hand, you don't want to fail. So riskier, what do you mean by risk? Uh, risk that you are, you are willing to challenge, you, you're willing to uh, face, that's good. But um, if the word risk is, is used as an excuse that I will try, but I may not be successful. I think that's, that's the worst case you can imagine. So it really, yeah, we, have to sh we have to make clear that if there's a risk, we have to make that point clear. But then the follow-up conversation, once we share the understanding, so how, what will we do? What will we do? Uh, how we will we work together to the, in, in the best way to have a successful mission? I think that's a critical part. Yes, yeah, so when you have the risk, you better make it open. And uh, if you have a risk, you better minimize it. You, ha you have to show the countermeasures when you talk to your space agency, of course. So, yeah, um, riskier mission means that it's maybe something that only we can do, we at, at ISIS, the Science Institute of JAXA can do, um, because we are smaller, we are more agile institute. So there's a merit in trying to make a riskier mission more doable through our effort, through our, our teaming up. So yeah, after all, you have to be smart enough, you have to know what you're doing. I think that's really the critical point, yeah. So moving on to after the initial talks, the mission is organized and set off. We have noticed that the boundaries between agencies get blurred once a mission starts in our previous interviews because the newly created team is seen as the new reference. So does that seem correct to you in your experience? And if so, how does then the decision-making system work within this new unit? Yeah, that's a that's a very very uh, sharp observations, by the way, uh, Constanza. I'm, I'm really I'm kind of amazed by how you observe how, how you have got how you have been through the conversation with our team members. 
Um, yeah, so uh, up to the point whether you decide whether you, you, have, you um, participate in an international mission or not, the decision is on the space agency side. And the space agency takes the, what, well, takes the lead in making the decision. But once you agree to be a part, to become an international partner in a mission, it's the mission team all together. Uh, yeah, the international mission team where things are seamless, doesn't matter which institute you're supported by, it's that international team that becomes the core part of the mission. And the, each space agency becomes a supporter to that team. So uh, as long as the team uh, keeps its promise, space agency don't, do not try to step in. They always try to support the mission to move as smooth as possible. But there are cases that you have a trouble and the team members has to escalate to the, to the layers above to solve the problem. So what, 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 how it works is something like this. The, when the uh, team starts the project, they make a um, couple of promises. Like, this is the budget limit, this is uh, the human resources they need, and this is the science objective they will, they will uh, acquire at the end of the mission. The, those are the three key issues that they promise at the beginning of the mission, at the beginning of the development of the mission. And then uh, there might be a problem that they may need more budget or they may need more team members. Then in that situation, it's not the manager of the team, but the manager of the team has to escalate the issue to the space agency level to try to solve the problem. So uh, as long as they stay within the box that they promised, the team, the team will solve the, all the problem. The team will trouble, do the troubleshooting, but there are cases that they have to escalate. And, and um, there's a certain uh, document uh, system that when you hit this ceiling, when you hit this problem, you have to escalate uh, to the layers above to solve the problem. So there's a you know, kind of a systems engineering aspect to this. Uh, well, there's a management structure to in, in, uh, in solving problems and in, in making uh, critical decisions. Very interesting, thank you. Um, so something fairly unique to space exploration is that missions take place over a very long time scale, easily 10 years or more. Personally, I haven't really encountered scientific projects of this length in my background at university. And I'm very curious about the way of thinking and organization that comes with these long timescale projects. So in your experience, uh, what are these ways of thinking and what do you think is needed for these projects to be successful? So Rowan, again, this is an interesting question because uh, you must, so throughout the sessions you, you, you've been having during the internship, you must be thinking, what are these guys? How can these guys work for 20 years for a mission? I've wondered. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. Well, um, yeah, but on the other hand, yeah, we always wish that we can shorten the, the, the interval of a mission, especially the, the waiting time, you know, like, you have an idea and you make a proposal. We really wish that we can shorten that period. And once the mission starts, once the development starts, it's, um, you know you you know that things will happen more or less, and that will that's a that's a that's a better feeling. But on the other hand, we know that the this the mission will take a long time, so it's not like um, how do I say? It's not like your mission. It's not like your personal thing. Um, you may be the key person to the mission, but you have to have the feeling that you are working for the team, that you are, you're 
bringing something to, to people around you. It's not like you're trying to gain something out of what you're doing. It's more like be nice to the people around you. It's, it sounds, sounds silly or sounds trivial, but it's this feeling that maintains the, the feeling of the team. Uh, there may be new people coming in. People, some may, people may have to leave, and, uh, you know, like myself, to become a you know <laughs> to have to have an administrative job. But even with through those changes, as long as you maintain the the mindset that you are really working together to to reach the goal. I, I, I don't know I'm, if that's the ideal uh, way of working, but that has been the practice in the past. Yeah. That mindset seems to be really important. Um, we've learned a lot about JAXA's collaborative missions during our interviews. Uh, for example, the Martian Moons Exploration Mission is going to be the largest planetary mission JAXA's launched so far, and it's done in collaboration with NASA, the European Space Agency, as well as the agencies of France and Germany. So I was wondering if you can give us some examples of specific achievements in science and engineering that you think couldn't exist without collaboration? Yeah, this is, um, again, a very interesting question because, um, well, let me put it this way. Um, you know, our institute, it's relatively small and um, we have scientists as well as engineers, but because the institute is small, the most important part, most important element is that we should really work together. But we are now, I think we are now in a very good shape, but it didn't used to be like this 20 years ago, something like this. Like um, when this, the asteroid sample return mission started, the, the perhaps the first, it was more like an engineering demonstration. And uh, they managed to get the samples from, on the surface of an asteroid, and the samples were coming back. But um, Back then, engineers were reluctant to build a sample curation facility, thinking that it's expensive. But of course, the samples are coming back. So um, we, we like, you know, myself on the scientist side, I argued that we should, uh, we should put effort in the sample curation activity. And I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that back then, uh, people don't realize what's going to happen after this. What, what, what's going to happen after what, what, what had been happening. So we built the curation facility and people were thinking that the samples brought back by the HAPSA first will be tiny, only tiny amounts. And why do you have to build such a big curation facility only for those tiny samples? But, but again, you know, it's a sample. Samples coming back from space. We better, better, better practice so that we can be ready for the, another mission. And then we actually had the have the second, the, the another uh, asteroid sample return mission, and the samples brought back by Habs two is is um, is what's the word? Um, can't explain by what it's like a speechless. You know, it was really really highly highly very valuable. But because we did practice for the Habs first regarding the sample curation, the sample curation activity for the very precious samples is going very, very smooth. And uh, everybody recognizes that it's for this precious samples that all the efforts of the mission were running. So it's this, um, it's not, maybe it's not, I'm not answering question because it's not necessarily a scientific achievement, 
but it's the achievement in terms of you know enhancing the tie between scientists and the engineers. You know, engineers are working for a mission that will bring high value in climate science and make scientists around the world turn to JAXA and say, oh, they're really doing something nice. So maybe we, uh, we want to be a, a part of the mission next time. And uh, scientists all over the globe trying to, uh, writing a proposal so that they can ally the samples and learn something about the early days of the solar system. So situating ourselves in the global space science activity, I think that's the achievement we are, I am witnessing uh, going on, you know, happening right now. Yes, thank you very much. And especially continuing on this idea, uh, talking about the tie between engineers and scientists and entering part three. In the interviews that we've carried out, it has been recognized that there is a specific approach whereby staff from JAXA and ISAS, being smaller agencies, have more cross-sectional jobs. So there isn't a division, canonical division between engineers and scientists. So in your own experience, having covered yourself different roles, what are the drawbacks and opportunities from this structure, if you do find it that it, it is in fact as such? Right, it's in human nature that you complain about everything <laughs> about that, that's happening in your every day. And uh, yeah, people always argue that they wish they had uh, a better salary because they are working much harder than <laughs> the average. But uh, on the other hand, they, they, they might say so, but back in their mind, they are really proud of what they do. And, and I think they are really enjoying what they do because it's not only cross-sectional, it's multifunctional at the same time. And uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're working for a space agency, you're working for a science institute. And uh, the role you play, people recognize the role you play, and there are more opportunities that you, you'll be recognized as somebody with, with guts. I think that's enjoyable. But at the same time, you have, you have a lot of pressure, you have, really have to work hard. So, yeah, so to join our institute, you have to know it. Um, you can be a, a scientist at the university, or you can be a member of uh, my institute. And you have to understand that there, there's a difference between the two. And once you understand the difference, and once you are convinced that you like to be a part of a space mission, I think this is place is uh, it's uh, not an easy place, but it's a good place to be. Yeah, I think the uniqueness and the difference um, has really become clear to us mm. as we've been doing these interviews. Uh, connected to the previous point, another thing that we've noticed is that um, because of its scale, uh, it really seems like everyone in the ISAS team knows each other personally. And so we were wondering, does that fact make it difficult to make decisions or carry out missions in some ways, or does it make it easier? I think you're talking about the situation that we need this instrument, um, but I'm not going to take your instrument, but I'm going to take somebody else's instrument. But are you okay with this? Yeah, a situation like this, mm -hmm. that's what you're asking when you, when you say difficulty. Um, and, and the merit of knowing each other is, is obvious, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch on the other issues. But about this um, kind of a difficulty, I don't know. Uh, well, it's difficult, but at the same time, um, I have, we have to, I, well, somebody like myself in my position, have to make that process smooth. And uh, there's a, I think the, the, the big, 
that we know each other. Even making those difficult decisions, we can make it in a timely way. We can make it relatively quickly. Quickly, not in the sense that quick. When I say quick, that may be that may sound bad for the guy who's not selected. But but on the other hand, um, when I say quickly, it's, it's it's like we may not we not may not be um, selecting your instrument, but we care about your expertise. We um, we uh, acknowledge your expertise, so can you help us? Even though we are we are selecting instrument B, not your instrument A, but still, because of expertise, can you help help the PI of instrument B so that the mission will be successful? I think it's easier to have that kind of uh, conversation, have that kind of you know timely teaming up, as long as the members of our institute knows knows what this institute is for. We are we are here to make our mission successful. So, uh, yeah, maybe we're relying too much on the mindset of the members of the institute, but that, that's how our institute is, after all. Thank you for your answer. Um, to conclude, could you share with us one lesson that we can take away today for future missions based on your experience in international cooperation? Yeah, I said, um, I said, and, and, and as you have observed, we really know each other within an institute. But when it comes to a nice, successful international collaboration, I think it applies to our international partners as well. So before you start something, you better know each other very well. And um, you have to make sure that is, is this guy somebody you really want to work together with for the next 20 years? And um, I think it's possible, as long as you have good enough conversation. And uh, maybe at the beginning, it's, it's not like this, but as long as you keep on talking, and um, if you really want to work together, you, you talk, talk, and make your partner be in good shape so that you keep on working together for 20 years. So everything is, is a dynamic process. It's not like... Um, it's not like Am I, is, he gonna, is, is your partner going to give you a direct return to you? If you start to ask that question, it's not going to be successful. Again, it's really like sharing the goal. And uh, start with sharing the goal. You keep on having the conversation. And uh, eventually, I think you'll become a good partner. And then that leads to the successful mission. So, yeah, knowing each other and uh, conversation really matters. Thank you very much. Um, as I see that we have some more time, if, if I can ask an extra question. Yeah, sure. Uh, we have observed, and it's a bit difficult to explain, but we have observed that throughout all the interviews, and um, people explain their missions and their work that they do, and in the years that this mission take, as we've discussed, there is this idea of continuity where there is a real awareness of the people that started it and the people that probably by the end of it will uh, take a lead or retired. And so it's their life's work and their experience. And then the new people that are coming in and they will continue this work. And so there is an idea that is very important to learn from the people that were before, but also leave something from the people afterwards. Do you think that is generally an approach to space science? Uh, it is a cultural thing? Is it something that you think it's important? And if you can elaborate on this idea. Um, I don't know. I, all, all I can tell you is, is what I observe because um, Things are really evolving. Um, my institute has been in the current shape since five years ago or something. 
on, on the other hand, you know, a mission takes more than 10 years. So the shape we are in now is ha, ha, has been only in, has been for only for five years, which is less than a mission. So things are really, really evolving. That, that's what I mean. But on the other hand, um, you know, a mission takes a long time. So you learn lessons from the senior people. But if you let the younger people, if you tell the younger people that you learn the lessons, so you just do how senior people has been doing. I think that's not going to be that's not going to be sustainable. And uh, luckily, in space missions, you don't repeat the same mission on and on and on. Every time you might do a similar mission, but every time you, you're giving a, a new, new ideas in, things are really evolving. You always try to do something new. And that really helps. So it may take 20 years to finish a mission, and uh, people come and go. And you learn lessons from your senior people. But you don't have to do exactly the same thing. And that, I think that's really helping. So... You join a mission that's after the, maybe after a launch, but you might be thinking in your head, but next time when, when I start from the scratch, I'll, I'll do a better mission. I think, I think that kind of uh, rival, rivalry, healthy rivalry among, among the generations, I think that's creating a good dynamism and uh, making this you know, business continuity plan not a boring thing. <laughs> and maybe that's special to uh, space science missions. I don't know. Um, NASA may have a different approach. They, they, they have more system engineering thinking. They want, they, they want to make it more formal, I guess, because they are, they are bigger. So again, size matters. The size of your institute matter, matters as well. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much um, for sharing your perspective with us and for joining us today. Uh, we really do appreciate you taking the time to answer all of our questions, and we look forward to seeing the new opportunities for space cooperation that will arise in the future. So, do you do you want to be a part of a space mission someday? Um, that would be incredible. Yeah, like absolutely. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> you have to you have to stay healthy, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and keep learning and in it for the long run. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to everyone listening as well. As today's episode draws to a close, we'd like to reflect on what we have learned through this series of interviews about international space cooperation, particularly the elements that we didn't have time to mention before. An interesting characteristic of space missions that we've encountered is the dichotomy between goals and the down-to-earth considerations of funding and budgets. Often the dream of a mission needs to be shared by many people to become feasible, making cooperation not just an opportunity, but also a necessity. An equally practical realisation is that very often a new mission is granted funding thanks to the success of the previous one, Some something that is kept in mind by all the people we've interviewed. In fact, this is seen as another reason to do the best work possible. At the same time, every mission is an opportunity for the scientific community as a whole, so there's a great keenness for people to participate. It was indeed very refreshing to hear how important it is to many people to meet in person uh, and to share proposals and project ideas and get to know each other better, um, a realisation born from the impossibility of doing so during the pandemic. Overall, the picture that is painted is of an organisation of individuals that yearn for discovery, surely for pure knowledge reasons, but with a distinctive touch of wonder. It is clear that belonging to an agency comes with a set of cultural, structural and habitual particularities, but it is also clear that each one of these has a value and can be a learning opportunity. 
To these missions, exchange is fundamental, if not critical, of ideas, data, culture, and simply respect. And respecting ideas are not just exchanged horizontally between scientists of different agencies, but also vertically, to the people that came before and gathered a lot of experience, to the new experts that will bring forward the legacy of the project in future ones. Indeed, once the mission starts, the previous bond moved to the background and the new unit becomes the center of the mission's team's orbit. As they strain into months and months into years, a mission thus becomes a living, evolving hub where all knowledge is tested and new one is created with opportunities to both teach and learn. The mission and its success is never an end in itself. It is part of a continuous discovery project of the scientific community. As it was made clear to us by Fujimoto-san on the very first day, we cannot frame space exploration in terms of material or economical gains. We should what should drive space research and what seems to drive researchers here at ISAS and JAXA is an opportunity to learn as infinite as space itself and the genuine cooperation that allows to turn dreams from a possibility to a reality. So that was the end of the interview session. Thank you everyone for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.